We are here in Coventry Cathedral, an extraordinary modern building. I can't decide if it's ugly or so ugly that it's beautiful, but it was built in the 1960s to replace the cathedral that had been bombed in the Second World War. And they did one thing right at least, they kept the old cathedral fabric as a kind of entranceway to the new cathedral. So you walk through the medieval before you get to the ultra-modern, or nowadays the dated modern. We're here for an exhibition, Light in Darkness, the Mystical Philosophy of Jakob Böhme, which is, I think, the first international exhibition about Böhme, a thinker of extraordinary importance. And the cathedral here in Coventry is hosting the exhibition. All right. We are with Lucinda Martin in an exclusive preview of the Burma exhibition before it's opened. And it's set up in this circular space in a little side chapel, chapel of Coventry Cathedral. And that you've got this giant central column of light, I guess, representing light. And then all around the edges we have these panels looking at different aspects of Burma's thought. So let's just have a walk around. It's a circular exhibition, which is really nice just to begin with. It is circular and um, actually the, the idea of light and darkness is, is the concept of the, of the exhibit and as sort of our, our leading symbol um, we chose um, an image from a contemporary of Burma, Robert Flood, mm. which actually shows um, this explosion of light into darkness and if you can imagine the floor of this central space we've actually reproduced that explosion on the floor so that as you, you, you follow that circle around, um, you go through a series of panels that explain Burma's different concepts. You have a fiat, you have God creating the universe through his word, and then the sort of dove of the Holy Spirit flying out into the abyss of, of primordial blackness. Mm. Well, what you have to know about Burma is that he was very concerned to bring together old knowledge and new knowledge. So this very um, religiously based, Christian based worldview, but together with the new scientific knowledge of his time. So for Burma, he, he looks at the, the, the creation story in the book of Genesis, when God said, let there be light, but he wants to bring that together with, with scientific understandings. So, and he actually wants to get at the origins of God himself. So he imagines that there was this sort of primordial darkness that pre-existed God. And he says the great mystery is that there was a movement within this darkness. And this movement he imagines being a bit like a doubling back of the darkness so that the darkness becomes aware of itself in the same way that one might look at oneself in the mirror for the first time and suddenly be self-aware. Um, and this is, this is the moment that Burma says all life began. And because God wanted to know more and more, or as he calls it, see more and more, a process was set in motion in which all of the things of the cosmos were created. Mm. So each, each moment of God's seeing or self-realization was a differentiation of this, of this primordial darkness. Wow. 
So that's is that's this, is the, this the Ungrund? This is what he later calls the Ungrund. In his first works, it's uh, it's not there. He talks about the dark valley of the Father, <laughs> which is again a phrase from the Bible. And later he calls it the Ungrund or the unground, which is a wonderful word because it's. On the one hand, it's a superlative, it's more than just the ground, but on the other hand, it's the opposite of the ground. <laughs> so it's negative theology at its finest. Yeah, yeah. We also have an illustration from a printed edition of the Aurora, his first work, right? Right. Um, 1682. So this is from a Alle Theosophische Werke, so like a first collected edition of his theological writings, I guess? Yes, but this only uh, came about in 1682. Yeah. Burma's actually writing uh, the Aurora in 1612. And there's an interesting story about that. Um, Burma was basically just a shoemaker living in Gerlitz, which is today on the German-Polish border. But he was very hooked into a network of, of religious reformers and alchemists and astrologers and learned people. Um, who were interested in the same kinds of things he was. Now, Burma wrote, started working on this manuscript, and as was typical in the period, he passed copies among his friends, and this is how authorities became aware of the Aurora and confiscated the manuscript and forbid him to write further. Mm. And it's actually only because it was confiscated that we still have today the original autograph that Burma wrote. It was locked away under lock and key, and today it's held in the Herzog August Bibliothek in, in Wolfenbüttel, Germany. And for this exhibit, um, my colleagues and I have actually created a digital edition of the work. Brilliant. So you can virtually thumb through it and different passages are highlighted and translated into English for you. Do we know if there are any particular doctrines of his that were at the time actually made explicit why we are telling this guy to stop writing? Or was it just more, he's just not right in the head? Or, or were there specific things? So the actual opposition to his, to his doctrines came later. Right. And, and um, his ideas were challenging and different for the period. Um, but the initial reaction against him simply had to do with his social station, because a simple shoemaker did not have the right to speak publicly about religion. That was really reserved legally for ordained theologians. Right. And that's, that's the argument that was brought against him and, and why the work was confiscated. So class politics come into it big time. Actually, yes. This isn't the first or the last time we'll see that in the 17th century, eh? No, not at all. But it, it is interesting because, um, you know, you're, this is an esoteric podcast. So <laughs> maybe just a, a few words about, about that, what that means in terms of Burma. Um, Wotter Hanaglaf has talked about um, the rejection of knowledge. And certainly that's, that's part of what happens with Burma, but it's also very much a rejection of, of certain people dispensing knowledge. Because the fact is that a lot of what Burma was, was saying was also said by others. For right. example, Johann Arndt, who was an ordained theologian. And it seems to have been okay for Arndt to voice certain things, but not for Burma. Mm. So a struggle that maybe we can trace back into the Middle Ages with the repeated attempts of not just mendicant friars, but also individual lower class mystics yes. to step forward and say, I've had a vision, and then negotiating 
are we going to consider you legitimate or not? Like, what, what's your background exactly? Where are you from? Uh, we're not so sure, you know, this sort of thing. Christianity has a tradition of either expelling such challenges or incorporating them and right. raising them up. Right. So somebody like Hildegard von Bingen, um, you know, was made into a saint. But many others similar to her, saying similar things to her, were burned. Right. And, um, you know, Burma was very much suppressed. His followers were very much suppressed. Um, which is, again, why we have the writings today and why they were so influential, particularly in English, because Burma's followers um, took his writings with them to the Netherlands and to England and also to the North American colonies where they could practice their religion freely. By the 1640s, we already have translations of nearly all of Burma's works into English, and they began to be very influential in certain circles in England. Yeah. So globe, the, the, uh, the people who tried to suppress this stuff in the old-fashioned medieval way weren't counting on the globalization that was going on in the 17th century. People just hop on a ship and go somewhere new. Mm -hmm. And that old-style, and there's printing in abundance, so the old-style suppression doesn't really work anymore. No, and, and to the contrary, I even think um, that exiling people and causing them to, to spread the ideas further was probably led to them being preserved today. Right. If they had remained, you know, in a certain corner of Germany, maybe we wouldn't even know about them anymore. Mm. Yeah. Right. So moving on from creation, we have a little organ accompaniment, which we always like in interviews. Um, we have creation, then we have nature. So nature was very important for Burma. Burma said that one actually doesn't need books because we have everything we need to know in nature. And when he spoke of nature, he, he also did mean the human body, humans themselves. But he said, and you know, we have this nice quote, you won't find in any book, you won't find any book in which you could better discover and investigate divine wisdom than when you walk on a green and blooming meadow. Mm. And he has other passages where he says, if you want to know about God, go touch a tree go smell a flower, right. you know. So, lovers of Blake will not be surprised um, to know that Blake was hugely influenced by Burma, because this, to me, just takes me straight to Blake. You know? Well, Blake was in particular inspired by Burma's ideas about imagination, mm. and imagination being um, a process that, that is inspired directly by God, by the divine. Right. Will we come to that? Yes, we, we will, will come to that. That has its own panel. Yeah. <laughs> but nature um, for Burma was an outflowing of the body of God. And we believe that he actually got this idea from Kabbalistic sources. We know that Burma um, was influenced by, by Jewish mysticism. We don't know whether it was directly um, with contact with Jews that he may have had. Um, or even Jewish writings, or perhaps through so-called Christian Kabbalists who had already transformed such writings. Mm. But yeah, so the, the body of God, this is an interesting one. This is an interesting one. While we're in the subject of nature, does, does Burma have a theory about what bodies are made of? Like, does he believe in atoms? Does he believe in four elements? Does he, what's his, his actual physics about, mm. if he ever addresses that? Mm. Because if, if God has a body, it has to be made of something. Yes. So what's it made of? Yes. Well, the whole business of bodies um, is, is quite complex with Burma because Burma conceives of three different planes of existence. Mm. Um, some of our more radical uh, Burma followers actually think that Burma knew about the matrix. <laughs> right. 
because um, Burma talks uh, about these, these different planes of existence, um, and he talks about different kinds of bodies. So for Burma, the first human being created in the image of God had a body like God. And since God encompasses all elements and all characteristics of the universe, that body must have been both male and female, for right. example. So the first human being was both male and female, but not material. Right. Okay, so this was, um, he says it's a light body or an angelic body. And after the redemption, yeah. we will regain these bodies. Okay. Yeah. Now I know Burma, well, as you can see from this panel here, Burma is very influenced by the alchemy of his day, which was in turn um, very pervasive in in Europe, in Western Europe, in that in that period, Western and Eastern Europe. Um, so, in a way, it makes sense maybe that he would set high store by bodies and matter and see them as something that's capable of becoming redeemed and purified. And but but Burma makes clear that he's not a practicing alchemist. He understands alchemy as a study of certain principles and the way things work in the universe. And he thinks that. Um, chemical alchemy and spiritual alchemy are parallel processes. And he finds, you know, places in the Bible where it talks about um, the soul being refined to gold. There are passages like that. Um, so, so he's very grounded in the things he talks about. And, and in fact, he imagines that, that a process takes place in the soul of purification. And this process takes place through a kind of fire, he calls it a fire, that's, that's fueled by the battle between good and evil and this, the human conscience trying to, to decide what's right and what's wrong. And this purifies the soul. Now we have the next panel, which is Cosmos. And um, this is very interesting to me because we were talking a little bit about this earlier and I just assumed that Burma was a geocentric man, but no, he is a heliocentric man. So he's in some ways part of the most up-to-date scientific developments of his day, as well as all the other things he is. Yes, Burma, Burma was disappointed with the results of the Reformation, and he actually saw his efforts as carrying it further, and he specifically disagreed with Martin Luther about this notion that the Earth is the center of the universe. Um, we don't know exactly where he got his knowledge from, but we know that Kepler was in Gerlitz. Kepler worked together with um, the mayor of, of Gerlitz on calendars and things like that. Um, so Burma was very informed about these things, and, and he talks a bit about the fact that the sun is at the center of the universe, and, and he connects it to his theory of the three worlds and the three, what he calls the three principles. Um, so it's, it's proper for him that the sun is at the center. The sun stands for the father. Hmm. So then the earth is one of the seven planets, presumably. The earth has been demoted. Yes, yes. So in Burma's time, seven planets were known, and um, seven is, is a very important number in the Bible, and, and for Burma, yeah. very important. There's also a lot about light and darkness symbolism on this cosmos panel but maybe the best thing is to move on to the next 
panel, which is entitled Darkness, and we can get into that stuff a little bit. We have another Robert Flood illustration here, one of my favorites, which is um, just a black panel, and it says et sic in infinitum, and this is what it was like infinitely. So this is the, the pre-creation primordial utter nullity, which um, is, produ is produced by the printer's art as a kind of black cross-hatched square. Um, did you ever read Tristram Shandy? No. By Lawrence Stern, slightly later than this, but it also has a black panel. I wonder if it's okay. inspired by Flood. Um, and we have a quote from the Mysterium Magnum. Darkness is the greatest enemy of light, and yet it is the cause for the revelation of light. Indeed, if there were no black, the white could not reveal itself. This is actually one of the ideas that, that caused the most controversy for Burma, because he said that the universe is so constructed that for life to have meaning, death must exist. Um, you know, and he, he conceived of these, of, of these opposites of male and female and hot and cold and, and darkness and light. And um, one, he said, doesn't make sense without the other and that they're constantly in opposition. And this opposition, by the way, was what philosophers like Hegel found so interesting, this idea of the dialectic, right. which comes directly from Burma. Right. Um, but, but Burma was... So we was, can trace a line, sorry to interrupt, yes. from Burma to Hegel to Karl Marx, actually. Yes. What an interesting historical lineage that is. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but Burma was very much criticized for this because people said, does that mean that, that God wanted evil to exist? Right that evil was built into the system. And Burma's reply to that is, no, of course he doesn't want evil to exist, but he wants free choice to exist. So that's, that's, mm. that's the catch. In a way, well, from a theological perspective, that actually solves the problem of uh, free will quite neatly. Because it seems like if you want a perfectly good creator, you're gonna have a real trouble with and a perfectly omniscient and omnipotent creator, you're gonna have a lot of trouble with free will. And that, you know, the various orthodox yes. churches did their best. But he sort of neatly solves that problem, maybe opening up other problems to his theology. Well, people were not happy with his solution. No. The, 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 the battles raged, and um, among people who were inspired by Burma in the 17th century, that was sort of the dividing line, that and the connected issue of, of universal salvation. Uh, so you have, um, you have the so-called Philadelphians um, who were striving for one universal church of all good people. And by the way, they were so um, progressive that they even included Jews in that as well and Muslims. Um, so they, they actually conceived um, of, of a universal salvation, a process of, of purification through which eventually even Lucifer would be forgiven because they said an all-loving God cannot condemn anyone mm. for all of eternity. And this was a very big subject right before and during the Enlightenment. What happens to unbaptized babies? What happens to these newly discovered people on other continents who have never heard of Christianity? What happens to these souls? Um, so a lot of, of followers of Burma were, were finding an answer for that in Burma's writings because Burma actually says, do you think God is only the God of Christians? All of us have the same spiritual inheritance according to Burma. 
So, um, mm. yeah, this, this was also very influential in lots of different um, philosophical debates of the time. So Leibniz, for example, was very, very interested in Burma and in, and in particular in the, in the Philadelphians, in, in Jane Lead, um, and really thinking a lot about, um, about the, the fate of non-Christians. Right. Um, this idea has its roots in antiquity in Oregon. Well, Clement of Alexandria yes. in Oregon. Yes. Now, do we know, we, we know in a slightly later era that the Cambridge Platonists were actually reading Oregon in Greek and going, wow, this is an interesting idea. Salvation of everyone, including the devil, over progressive sort of eons of purification. Do we have any evidence that people in Burma's Germany were reading Oregon or Clement? Um, other people were right. reading Oregon. Certainly the uh, Johann Wilhelm and Johanna Eleonora Petersen, who were the major proponents of, of sort of Burmist thought right. in the 17th century, they did read Oregon. Um, Burma himself, interestingly, doesn't go that far. He doesn't go so far as to talk about universal salvation. And what all of the later Burmists say about that is that God reveals his mysteries progressively over time, and Burma had not yet received that wisdom. So it's interesting to see also what people did with Burma, and he's been interpreted in, in a lot of different ways over the mm. centuries. We can, let's come back to that, because I'd like to know about the, the, the reception history is almost as interesting as yeah. the history of the, of the man's thought itself. Yeah. Um, moving on, we have a panel devoted to fall, and this has two illustrations, one by Dionysius Andreas Freyer, do you say it? Freyer? Freyer. Freyer, who was perhaps the greatest of Burma's illustrators? I would one of them. say that he was probably the greatest illustrator and perhaps the greatest interpreter, although he's little known. Right. Um, because a... Freyer wrote everything by hand and nothing was published from Freyer. But Freyer spent his entire life studying Burma. Wow. Um, he was one of, of many German followers of Burma who sort of took a route first to the Netherlands, to Johann Georg Gichtel, who, was, um, who actually put together the first uh, anthology, the first printed edition of Burma's Complete Writings, and then continued on to London to visit Jane Lead and her group um, to see if he would fit in there. Um, and for a time, he, he participated in that group and in the end kind of seems to have done his own thing, sort of just studying in isolation. But his, his very interesting pop-up books, which if you can imagine, they're illustrations in which there are many layers that you can actually lift up the layers. And I think most people have seen children's books like mm. this. Um, and these layers explain to you Burma's theology. Freyer was very concerned to be able to explain Burma to people who couldn't read him, and particularly who couldn't read the German. So in, in Freyer's tables, you see, for example, the, the earth and the planets, and you open it, and you see a human being. And you go down through the different levels, and you see the different phases of fall. So you see the first human being in the Garden of Eden, then you see how the person fell into sin, and eventually how, how, this, uh, how this human being uh, regains the original body and is, is an androgynous male, female human being. Mm. And then at the very end, inside this human being, you come back to the cosmos. So it's a microcosm, macrocosm kind of idea that all of the universe is in us, and we are in the universe. Mm. 
we have another illustration on the same panel by William Blake. And um, Blake was, I think Blake's single greatest influence were the illustrations of Freyr. Like, not only that he was a, a Beminist, a, a Bohemian, but that he, he considered him the greatest artist ever to put pen to paper, from what I remember reading about Blake. He absolutely loved his style, so a spiritual and an artistic inspiration. So this is two lovely images from a long line of visual art inspired by Burma. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting, actually, that so many artists were in these um, circles of, of Burma readers and followers, and I think it has to do with the transmission history, that he was long suppressed and manuscripts sort of sent around underground. Um, so you end up having a lot of artists and printers involved in these circles. Mm. Um, and, and then the fact that Burma is quite difficult to read, some have said that he's the most difficult German writer, which is saying a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I think people, people tried again and again to explain Burma through imagery. Was he... What makes what's so difficult about him as someone who's read him in German? What what? Well, we have to remember that, that Burma was a layman. He had yeah. no formal education to speak of, or very little. Um, Is he writing in a thick dialect of his region? No, it's, that's not the problem. It's more that he has no systematic way of talking, and he uses a lot of metaphors. And you know, you often feel that he's trying different things out. So he presents an idea using an alchemical metaphor, and then he explains the same idea using a, a Kabbalistic metaphor, and then then he comes at you again with with something else and. You don't always know how to bring it all together. Um, mm. And even the greatest Burma specialists are, are often on shaky ground. And, and you know, you have to, I think you have to study him for years to really get at him. Um, but I think if, if, if any of your readers are interested to read Burma, a good place to start is with his Aurora, his first work, mm. uh, which is maybe the most straightforward before he began to incorporate a lot more. Right. And Burma actually said, um, everything I've written, and he wrote around 30 works, um, everything I've written is just a, a further explanation of Aurora. Right. So from the vision to the expanded form of the vision, Aurora, yes. a few years later, and then after his uh, silent period, a whole slew of books. Again, more complex, more involved, more um, tangled, but all coming, sort of going back yeah. to that initial point of inspiration. Yes, and, and um, that happened in um, around 1600, um, but Burma only begins writing Aurora around 1612. He says, I was pregnant for 12 years with all that I learned in one moment. And this one moment, by the way, um, he reportedly was gazing at a polished bowl, and he saw the light hit this bowl and understood that he could only see the darkness because of the light and the light because of the darkness, which is, of course, the key to his whole system, right. this idea of the dialectic oppositions. Um, but he says, in this one moment, more was revealed to me about God and creation than as if I had spent a lifetime studying books. Mm. Now, <clears throat> we've sort of reached maybe a halfway point in the panels, and we have a film. What is this film? This is a very beautiful film made by Ronald Steckel and his team. Um, it's called Morgenröte im Aufgang, which is the German name of Aurora, which, which translates as something like um, morning, dawn, ascending. Um, we just simply call it Aurora. 
and he calls this, the subtitle of the film is Homage on Jakob Burma. And this film has actually won a number of uh, awards for best spiritual film, best religious film. And the film um, simply shows an actor walking through nature, sitting in his study writing, and so forth. And the sound is Burma's text being read. Um, but there are also very long passages where you just see beautiful imagery of nature or where you're, you're just looking at the face of, of the actor um, who does a beautiful job of portraying so much just with the eyes. So um, if people are interested in, in mysticism, I can really recommend this film. All right. What's the running time? It's pretty long. It's nearly two hours. Okay. And um, usually I recommend to visitors who are not accustomed to this kind of thing to just sit and enjoy it for a few moments and experience it a little bit. And you can always come back to it later. Mm -hmm. You don't have to see it all at one sitting to, to sort of have a sense um, for, for Burma and, and for his experience. And in terms of the exhibition, is, is this just on a loop? It's just playing? It's on a loop, yes. Um, we, we also had it on a loop in, in the similar exhibition that we held in Dresden. Um, and I think um, a lot of people were, were very moved by it. Hmm. Okay, so we've seen darkness fall, and then a film, and then we have light. Life is born in the midst of death and light in the midst of darkness from the Aurora 921. Mm -hmm. So what do we have to say about light? Well, if we come back to Burma's idea about how the, how the universe was created or how God was created. So, so Burma says that in the moment that this movement occurred in the primordial darkness, um, we have light coming into darkness. And the darkness he identifies with God the Father and light with Christ. So the first two persons of the Trinity, for Burma, they emerge um, at this moment. And I, I think it's obvious uh, that, that Burma's understanding the Trinity in terms of principles. So the dark, fiery principle is the Father. The light, life-giving principle is the Son. And he says the Holy Spirit is the principle that binds it all together. Hmm. Now, interestingly, Burma conceives of um, a mechanism that allow all of these to come into being. Um, and many have, have said that, that that actually constitutes a fourth person in the Trinity because Burma looks back to early Christian writings about wisdom. Uh, the Sophia. The Sophia, exactly, as a female element in God. And for Burma's system, a female element is actually necessary in God because he says God has to encompass all of the cosmos, male and female, so there has to be a, there has to be a female bit. <laughs> right. And he finds that in Sophia, and of course there are very, very many passages in the Bible where wisdom actually has a voice, you yeah. know? And there's a there's passage in the Bible that says, um, I am wisdom and I was there at the beginning with the Father. And Burma takes that to understand that Sophia is actually the, the mechanism for the birth of everything else. Hmm. And interestingly, they're, they're with or before God the Father. So that's, wow. that's interesting. Wow. Yeah. This, you, uh, 
it's a bit generalizing and it's probably not worth very much, but I am struck by the way that in esoteric currents within Christianity, repeatedly this Sophia figure keeps coming in. She appears in Valentinian Gnosticism, she appears in um, many other Gnostic currents. Um, well, she appears in some forms of um, pre-Christian apocalyptic Judaism. So it, it's not even Christian, it's, it's, it's the Bible, the, the biblical, the Abrahamic tradition itself seems, it's like you try to exclude the feminine from the divine, but she keeps kind of popping her head up again and again over time. And it's a, it's a very interesting question. Some people think that he Why? got the idea from Judaism because of course we have the Shekinah. Yeah. Uh, we have the, the seat of God's wisdom. Um, but I think it's entirely possible that it's just from Christian sources. Um, we still have at this time in the area near Görlitz um, Catholic masses being said to uh, the Sophia Maria. So what, what you often have in the early modern period is that Sophia is melded together as an aspect of the Virgin Mary, or she's melded together as an aspect um, of the Holy Spirit, sometimes even as an aspect of Christ. People recognized that this is in Christian history, it's, it's in the Bible, and they kind of didn't know what to do with it, um, you know, in the patriarchal structures of the church. But I think completely beyond sort of cultural context, just from a psychological point of view, when humans experience spirituality, they experience, of course, things in a holistic way, and, and they experience that um, femininity is also part of our world and our experience, and um, it just doesn't seem logical or right that it that it shouldn't be included in in our system of belief in some way so so to come back to what you were saying about different traditions and about it coming up again and again i think it's just a tension between what human institutions have done and what human be beings experience right yeah so then the question becomes how did we develop institutions in the first place that want to get rid of the feminine <laughs> and that goes back to prehistory and God yeah. knows what that's all about. Talk to some anthropologists about, about why men have everything in their hands. Yeah. So light. There's a lot more we could probably say about light in Burma, but that's interesting. So Christ is the light principle. Well, it seems like everything in, in Burma is polyvalent, so there's going to be more than one thing you can say about light. But one thing is that Christ represents the, the light of the fiat lux, of the let there be light at the beginning. He emerges forth from the darkness of the Father. And somewhere in the, on the scene is the divine Sophia figure exactly. making it all happen, almost as though she is the wife of God the Father, as the, the consort figure. I, I don't think Burma would have said that, no. <laughs> although he did sometimes use um, the sort of biblical language of, uh, you know, sort of erotic imagery and so forth and talk about love play and talking about Sophia. Mm. Yes. Interesting. So there's eros, there's eroticism in the in this primordial there, story. There, actually, the actually desire is a huge theme by Burma, um, and he he understands this also on on an alchemical level. So, for example, when when different compounds are attracted uh, to one another, um, he understands it as a form of magnetism. Um, but also when human beings are attracted to one another. So for him, this is a basic uh, force within, within the cosmos. Now rebirth is the next panel. And this um, brings me to a question I was going to ask you about. So we have this 
Um, well, just as a mother bears a child, so too will the new human being be born in and out of God, a child of heaven and paradise. This is from Burma's letters, epistles, or no, this Did, is from the, the from... No, this, this particular quote is from Burma's letters. Yeah. Um, I, I think one way to understand Burma's whole system is as a series of births. So creation itself is a series of births. Mm -hmm. um, I hope you can hear me over the, the lovely organ playing. We're, um, we're actually right next to the organ. <laughs> this is an experimental, esoteric interviewing at its finest. Yeah, so I was just saying that, that one way to understand Burma's uh, understanding of the cosmos is that, is that everything is constantly in a, in a state of birth and death and rebirth. Um, so he, he even explains, for example, his own writing process as a birth. So he was pregnant for 12 yeah. years with, with the vision that he had, and he finally was able, through this very difficult process, to give birth. Right. So and labor pains. Like labor pains, yes. And, right. he, and he talks about it in terms of labor, yeah. Mm. Um, and and his, his faith battle, and, and here he does, does rely also on biblical imagery. So he looks to the story of Jacob in the... In, book of Genesis there's this wonderful story about Jacob fighting the entire night with some say that it was God himself some say it was an angel of God um, and so this fight went on all night and it was only at the dawn that uh, that God gave his blessing that that Jacob then became the father of Israel right um, and so this, this actually, this is also where Burma gets the title of his work, Morgan Morning Dawn Ascending. So it's the moment when one receives the blessing. It's the moment when the faith battle has been won. And this, again, is for Burma a birth. In terms of a human life cycle, right, what does he say about this? We're born. Do our, does our soul, do we have a soul? We do. Did the soul exist before we came into the body? Hmm. Or does he talk about that? I'm, I'm not aware of him talking okay. about that. Because that's another thing Oregon was, he was all about the yeah. pre-existence of the soul. Um, we, have a, we get a body, we're born, we have a soul. What happens when we die? Hmm. Does a, he, does he a good question. <laughs> get into that in a straightforward way? No, not really. He's much okay. more concerned about um, the the battle with the imagination if you look at the next panel about yeah. imagination nice segue um, actually these two these two go sort of hand in hand rebirth and imagination because the whole point for burma of imagination is that through prayer and contemplation and this divinely inspired process of imagination we can move in our minds mentally closer and closer to the original image that god meant us to have and whatever image we're able to achieve in our mind, that is the image we will bear in heaven. So Burma's followers, you know, they spent lots of time in, in prayer and meditation. We can understand Burma, I think, in the context of, of the 17th century's um, devotional writers, except that he's, you know, he's much more radical than, than many other writers who were simply saying, um, you know, let's contemplate um, Mary's pain or, or Christ's suffering to get closer to God. He was actually trying to help us produce what he calls the new body that we'll have in the afterlife. Wow. Yeah. And Burma does, by the way, differentiate between what he calls human fantasizing and divinely inspired imagination. So imagination is the process that 
that actually involves God. And we've used for that, for that reason this image from Robert Flood again. Um, and like Burma, he has seven stations of imagination represented here by, by different circles. Um, and Burma talks about how all of the senses of the body, sight, hearing, smell, taste, and feeling, work together with the mind and the heart. Um, but the mind, actually, you can see above the word Deus, God. Mm. So it's the input from God that enables the human being to achieve something above mere animal cognition. Right. And that, in flood anyway, God is coming from the mundus intellectualis, the noetic world, which is another very, very old conception. So the, the non-material realm, mm -hmm. but one that is, in, is apprehensible by some high faculty of the human being but not to our normal kind of everyday human what's, what's interesting to know in this context is that, that Burma thought that all bodies have spirit. And when he says bodies, he means everything that has a shape. So a stone, Rocks. a stone, mm. yeah. Um, so all bodies have spirit and all spirits have body. But a body can also be um, what he calls a light body or an invisible body. Right. Okay, and in this context, Burma talks a lot also about magic. And Burma simply means um, the ability to use the imagination in certain ways. Wow. So magic, magic involves things that happen invisibly. So a farmer uses magic when he's able to make his crops grow. And he says, I, I'm not talking about sorcery. I'm not talking about any kind of devilish business. I'm just talking about being able to manipulate invisible forces. That's a startlingly modern take on magic. Yeah. Uh, all the Aleister Crowley fans are going, hang on a minute. Did he really say that? I mean, that's startlingly modern. That's startlingly modern. He's saying, well. Well, but the imagination itself, um, it, is, it is an invisible force, isn't it? We don't see what's happening up there. And Burma thinks that when we're imagining this new body in our minds, we're actually doing what God did when God created the heavens and the earth. It was a, it was a, it was a, an imaginal process. So, are we? Do we have a kind of sub-creator role in our human lives? I mean, maybe this is me being influenced by uh, romanticism. Uh, the is answer is yes and no. Okay. Um, yes, we're doing the same thing God did, but it's not a matter of different levels. It's more a matter of everything constantly taking part in this process. So, um, you know, everything is constantly giving birth to everything else. So when, you know, a stone breaks down, it's breaking down into other new things, into new elements. So this is how, how Burma understands the world. Now, spirit is geist, yeah? Is, is, yes. So is the word for what? So every body has a geist and every geist has a body. Yeah. But what? not a mind, so you have to differentiate in German. Got it. That was my next question. No, he wouldn't, he wouldn't think that, that stones or plants have a mind, but they have some sort of ineffable spirit, right. which, is why they, which is why they can change. So anything that can, essentially anything that can change, so the fact that you can put two, two elements together in a, in a dish and, and something new happens, shows that they have spirit. Right, it has to be alive to be moving. Well, it's not living, is it's it? It's not living, not organically living. In that yeah. sense, yeah. but it's part of God's creation. Hmm. 
Right. <laughs> so the, the divine imagination. And then that brings us almost to the end of this incredible circular exposition of Burma. We have the final panel, freedom. Another Freyer illustration from the three tables and a very interesting illustration brightly from, from Paul Keim and Nikolaus Heublin, Brightly Shining Mirror of the Heart, 1680. Is that a Burmese, a Beminist work? It, it's, it's, um, it's actually an anthology of Burma's writings, right. which was put together by um, Paul Keim, uh, who was a follower of Burma, and Heublin, who was one of the artists involved in these circles and who, who created um, this fascinating image of, if you can imagine, a heart with a face. It's also running, <laughs> and this heart has, has ears, and in one ear you have an, an angel stoking a fire with bellows, and in the other ear you have a demon stoking the fire, and this represents the battle I talked about in the soul between good and evil. Now, in Burma's time, all of the official churches emphasized original sin. Mm -hmm. Burma said, we have original freedom. We are endowed with a the, with the spiritual compass, with the ability to know right from wrong. This is in fact how he understood the, the statement in the Bible that we're created in God's image. Right. That's what makes us godlike. So this was very important for Burma, and because of this, when Burma learned about what he calls the people of a far island, which were North American Indians, um, he says the people of a far island must also have the light of Christ within them, even if they don't know about Christ. And what he meant is that they must have that light principle, that ability to know goodness. And this, by the way, became, became of course, um, very, very important for, for Burma's uh, reception um, for, for people who then later fought against slavery, for people who fought for uh, the right for women to study at a university. Um, for many of these human rights issues, people, people were reading Burma and, and taking up these, these stands. Mm. Hopefully we'll have time to talk after this about that, because that's the, the Nachleben is very interesting. When we look at some of these things, we'll see more about that as well with, yeah. the, with the, different, the different panels. So we've made our way around this kind of circular um, floor-to-ceiling windowed chamber with a big pillar of light in the middle and these panels around the edges looking at um, amazing visual artwork arranged thematically with text about Jakob Burma. Quite a lovely exhibition. And then we also have a kind of entranceway here. Now probably the organ is going to get even louder in here but we can see what we can record. So we have three big panels. Uh, Jakob Burma, little chronological thing, Burma's life, and Burma in England. So, so just to, to review quickly sort of what's on the panels, the first one is simply his chronology from being born in 1675, um, working as a shoemaker, um, having a vision in 1600, 1612 writing his Aurora and beginning difficulties with the authorities, and then around 1617 or 18, breaking, um, breaking that, that ban on his writing and starting to write again. Mm. Um, now this was on the eve of the Thirty Years' War, and we believe that, that Burma really thought the world needed his message. Right, things were getting apocalyptic. A lot Things of were getting were. Ap apocalyptic, and in fact, Burma and many of his contemporaries believed that they were living in apocalyptic times. 
1624, near the end of his life, Burma's invited to Dresden, to the royal court, to, to talk about his ideas, and he unfortunately dies on the way back home from that journey. Um, we have on, on the second panel about his life, um, you see some, some famous images, Burma in his uh, cobbler's uh, um, shop, working. Actually, it's interesting because he, in the, in the image, he's writing and he's surrounded by the instruments of, of shoemaking. So he's literally turned his back on shoemaking to become a writer. Right. Um, and then we see um, a panel about Burma in, in England specifically. Um, and this is really about Burma's reception here in England uh, after the 1640s and 50s when his works were translated into English. Um, he was influential, for example, on uh, Isaac Newton, who seems to have uh, taken some of his ideas um, about gravity, perhaps even from Burma, with, with Burma's idea of, of attraction as a, as a basic uh, force in the cosmos. Um, and there's actually a very famous painting from William Blake um, showing Newton um, sketching the cosmos. Um, and of course, Blake himself was, was a Burmist, very interested in Burma's idea that uh, imagination is a divinely inspired process. Mm. Um, we have the, the so-called Cambridge Platonist school of philosophers um, who believed, like Burma, that one could learn about God through nature. Um, and a, ma a very major influence, of course, was on um, Quakers who agreed with Burma that no Christian can make war and they were particularly influenced by this idea of light and darkness. And anyone who knows anything about Quakerism knows that Quakers took up this idea of the divine light in each human being, the idea of the cosmos as containing these, these big principles of light and darkness, but also the idea that in the end, um, light will triumph if we all work for it. <laughs> well, Lucinda, thank you for showing me around. What an amazing uh, exhibition. <laughs>